briefly the words of Jesus as we have heard already in tonight's service. And imagine if you were there. Not, not there like, like John or, or Mary or some of the other ladies who are mentioned, but there incidentally, because it's like the highest festival of the year, the biggest holiday in all, of, in all of Judaism. It's when one of the three times of the year, and if you could only make one, come to this one. One of the three times in the year when everybody was supposed to come to Jerusalem, when all the hotels were booked, and even the Airbnbs that you didn't want, you would take it anyway. And you're walking. And you come over the hill. <sighs> And there's the reminder that even as you're coming to celebrate the great victory of God rescuing his people out of slavery, even as you're coming to celebrate the picture that God used to show his might and his glory and his goodness, and there is the reminder that the Romans are in charge. And there is the reminder that despite the best efforts, that all of a sudden this whole Passover celebration seemed a little empty. Because you get a little bit closer and you try to shield the children's eyes and point out something over there. And you get a little closer. And it's like that knot in the pit of your stomach just tightens up. And you look, you steal a glance. And it's the, the figure of a man, but he's marred, broken beyond human likeness. And we could go on, on all the, the medical realities of crucifixion. On all that, that happens and all that doesn't happen and all the strain that it puts on the human body and all the pain that it causes and that it goes on for days until either dehydration or suffocation takes its toll. But you can find that online. But I guess the only thing that I would have to say in that regard would be if you ever had any doubt about um, the depth of man's depravity, just look at the way that he can torture another human being. And you're there to see it. And by all external appearances, it looks like just another day. Just another day when the Jewish people, when God's people are coming to celebrate this greatest of festivals. And just another day when there are the Romans reminding them who is in charge here. And you even see the little placard over the top. Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. That doesn't just hit you like a ton of bricks. As the day progresses, if you were to stand there longer, or if you were to pass by later in the day, you might recognize that it isn't, it isn't quite business as usual here in Jerusalem on this day. Even though it is the Passover, there's something more. As you're sitting down for lunch, all of a sudden, 
Did the sun go behind the cloud? And why is it so dark that we have to light the lamps in the middle of the day? Later that afternoon, you just get the baby down for a nap, and then there's this massive earthquake. Why? Why indeed? By all external appearances, it, it was an abnormal day. But it's the words that tell the spiritual reality. And it's the words that give meaning. It's the words as, as Jesus is there on the cross and those who pass by, some hurl insults shaking their heads and others laughing in scorn. He saved others. Why can't he save himself? Almost like not an echo, but a straight-up replay of Psalm 22 that King David had written 900 years previously. And you see this man who had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, and yet the spiritual reality is there for us in the words of Isaiah, that he was stricken for our transgressions, and by his wounds we are healed. Sure enough, at his, at his birth, 30-some-odd years previously, there had been that special star in the sky, and there had been the Magi who had come and shaken Jerusalem up with their question, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? But now it looks like the Romans have their man, and they put him on a cross. <laughs> but even they, in their mocking, they can't stop the celestial events from happening again. The sun stops shining, and the earth quakes beneath. And it's of such a notable event that a month and a half later, when Peter is preaching at Pentecost, he's going to refer back to this and say, you know what, a lot of you were here for the Passover, and you realize all the strange things that happened. A little weird, don't you think? But it's the words that give meaning to this day. Because the historical reality, the historical fact of Jesus crucified on the cross, I mean, it, it lines up with everything that we've discovered about Roman crucifixion. And you can learn about the physical and medical realities if, if you so desire. And at the very least, it might give a new appreciation for what six hours of agony looked like. But it's the words. As you notice, as we, as we went through them, segment by segment, they shorten up in time until that second to last word, it is finished, is just one word in the Greek. Whereas the very first word before Jesus is put onto the cross, as he's dragging his cross out to that hill, he has a full-on conversation with these women who are weeping and mourning and wailing. And indeed, those who paid attention to his words then weren't inside of Jerusalem when the Romans showed up 30 years later. It's the words that give meaning to spiritual reality, not just the what of what happened and the facts of what happened, but the how and the why he tells us these things. Just consider them briefly. In that very first conversation, as the women are weeping and wailing for him, 
mourning as they would at any funeral. And it's, it's a big deal. Um, that's something that maybe is missing a little bit from, from our own mourning practices. But the Jewish mourning practice is like when there's a funeral, you hire people to, to cry loudly for like a week. And that's the wailing that is lining the streets as Jesus takes his cross out because they figure here's, here's another Jewish man and the government convicted him and we say he's a criminal, but it's time to weep and wail because he's dying in the next couple of days. And Jesus turns to them. And he turns their wailing around. And he turns that wailing into a warning for them. Dear friends, watch out. Because if this is what happens when Christ is there, and he's been there for three years doing his public ministry, if this is what they do, what will happen when Christ will have been gone for 30 years? Perhaps you even hear the echo, what will happen if Christ will have been you know, not visibly present for 300 or 2,000 years since then? If men do this when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? And then the next statement. As he's put on the cross and the other the criminals are bickering back and forth, and um, the one stands up for Jesus, so to speak. And then he says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And apparently this man, we know that all three of them were Jewish. They were all Jewish men because, um, because it's the Passover. It's Jerusalem and Roman citizens wouldn't be crucified. But apparently this, this Jewish man had, had seen what was going on, had heard Jesus preach perhaps, or had been instructed in Jewish catechism. And he recalled that. And that's what God used to create faith, or rekindle the faith that was there. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And do you see how Jesus responds? I will. See you up there. No. Two things. Today you will be with me in paradise. That first part, today, that this crucifixion isn't going to drag on for three days or, or for a week or even until sundown. The promise that the suffering will be quick and it will come to an end. And then secondly, Jesus promises that even this man, this man would be with him in heaven that very day before sundown. You look at how Jesus says what he says. And you can't help but see the love that our Savior has for sinners at every step of the way. The third, <laughs> near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. And probably, quite possibly, it seems that Mary and Joseph had other, had other children. But those other children, those half-siblings of Jesus, who obviously shared the same mother but not the same father, those half-siblings of Jesus did not believe him. And so Jesus sees John there, the, the disciple who was his closest friend, and he entrusts his mother to John. 
yes, to, to care for her for the rest of her life, but she had other kids for that. But John would be the one to watch out for her spiritually, to sit with her in church when all the other kids weren't. John would be the one to be there all the way to the very end and remind her of all that she had seen and heard of the, the prophecy of Simeon that was fulfilled and what that meant. That it meant sin and guilt has been taken away and atoned for. And the words get shorter. The statements get shorter. The next one, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, one of the, the few um, Aramaic phrases that we have recorded for us in all of the Gospels. Jesus spoke Aramaic and was apparently fluent in a number of languages, Aramaic and Hebrew for sure. And when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He says that, yes, in fulfillment of, of prophecy, straight out of Psalm 22 again, but also for us to know that Jesus wasn't just um, spending time here for no reason. When he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the confusion has started to set in, and he is suffering the reality of hell. That God himself has turned his back on his son so that Jesus would suffer the pain of hell, but even more importantly, so that you and I would never know what it means to be forsaken by God, would never have that sense, that feeling that God has turned his back. He suffers it, and he says it, so that we know <laughs> that's not your fate. That's not our fate. Shorter still, John 19, verses 28 and 29. Jesus said, I am thirsty. And the note that John puts there from verse 28, later knowing that all was now completed, and so that the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus says, I am thirsty. You know, and he could have, he could have skipped this one. We wouldn't have known about it. Aside from the fact that, that John tells us this was in fulfillment of prophecy. And the prophecy from, I think, Psalm 89, maybe 88, um, the prophecy that the Messiah would ask for wine, would, would ask for a drink, and they gave him wine vinegar to drink. And it's the sort of thing that, that you and I would have overlooked entirely and not known the difference. But Jesus Christ, the author of Scripture, wants to make sure that he fulfills every single prophecy about himself and leaves nothing unfulfilled. And so he says, I'm thirsty. And part of that is the practical nature of things. Not just because he's thirsty, but because the next statement that he has is one that he wants to be loud and clear. The last two, actually. He wants to be very loud and clear. Then next one from John chapter 19, verse 30, it is finished. And in Greek, it's just one word. And it's the same word that, um, you know, maybe you remember the days when you could go to a, a store and have a, a credit with them, you know, or run up a bill with them. And then you would come back and pay it at a, at a certain point. Or maybe that's just the sort of thing they wrote about in, you know, dime store um, Western novels. 
But you could have a bill, and then you could come back and pay it. And then when it was paid entirely, they would scribble at the bottom PIF, or stamp it, PIF, uh, paid in full. And that's the exact word that Jesus uses here. That's the word that John records Jesus using, paid in full. And with that, you know, right about 3 o'clock in the afternoon, and the sun has been, you know, doing its not shining thing for three hours, Jesus says this, after receiving the drink, he says, it is finished. And what he says there, not just, he's not talking about the drink that just finished. He's talking about the suffering for sin that has been completed and the bill of sin that has been paid in full, completely. And then he's got one more thing to say, and, and this is the, one of the longer statements again. They have been getting progressively shorter. But he gets to the end. And he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And Jesus called out with a loud voice, is the way that, Luke's, that Luke puts it. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. A loud voice so that, that those standing nearby couldn't do that whole, listen, maybe he's calling Elijah thing. When he says, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. As though they're trying to make sense of the, the random mutterings of a crucified man. Jesus says it loudly so that they can hear it. And what do they hear? They didn't kill Jesus. Jesus died. He gave up his own spirit, exactly as he said that he has authority to lay down his life and authority to take it up again. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. That all the work had been done and completed in those six hours on the cross, and now he would bow his head his soul would depart to be in heaven for three days. And shortly thereafter, the, uh, the other criminal crucified next to him would join him. But Jesus says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And he calls this out in a loud voice. I can, I can only imagine the sort of um, effort that would have taken I mean, it's hard enough to, to stand up for an entire service. <laughs> but to, at the end of his crucifixion here, to muster the energy to call out loudly as a cry of victory that the work has been done, that the sin has been paid for, and that now he lays down his life and that cry that <laughs> echoes throughout the hills of Jerusalem, even to the point where that centurion who is drawing, you know, maybe a bonus pay today because they've got three of them, that centurion says, you know what, there's something different about this guy. Surely this was the Son of God. And as the words kind of echo down through the valley, I don't know if it was right then or shortly thereafter with the earthquake, but there are a number of graves that burst open and some believers come on out. And the ground shakes and says, something different happened today. And there in the temple of God, that curtain that was four inches thick and 70 feet from top to bottom was torn in two from top to bottom. If you had been walking by that day, 
maybe some of those details would have escaped your glance. It's possible because none of us could have been at all those places to see all those things at all the right times. But it's the words that don't just tell us the what, but the why. And it's how Jesus says these words that shows to us a little bit more about the why. His care for the women, mourning for him, his care for his mother and the other thief next to him. Not just what he says, not just why he says it, but when and how he says it. Show us again that this Jesus who allowed himself to be crucified really loves sinners, people, you and me. And in those words, he shows it. And in the way he dies, he proves it. Amen.